Welcome to Forward Guidance Live. I have the pleasure of being joined by Joseph Wang, senior Fed trader and special guest, Nick Timoros, chief economic correspondent at the Wall Street Journal and author of a book I really want to get into, Trillion Dollar Triage, How Jay Powell and the Fed Battled a President and a Pandemic and Prevented Economic Disaster. Nick and Joseph, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thanks for having me, Jack. Thanks for having me, Jack. So, Nick, you are widely known uh, for people in the know, who someone who has a, a direct line into the Federal Reserve. You are very, very well um, plugged in. And Nick, I want to start because in, in your book, a lot of your book is about history. Before reading, I didn't know uh, but that you were so into history and the history of the Fed. And a, a lot of people, Nick, are making the comparison right now, but uh, saying, oh, uh, uh, Powell is having his Volcker moment when Jack interest rates to tame inflation and who cares what the politicians say. But it's my understanding that you actually have a slightly different analog for who Powell is in history. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I'm not suggesting that Powell isn't Volcker or, you know, the comparison I'm about to make. A couple of people who have read the book have suggested to me, Powell seems more like Bill Martin Jr. Who is Bill Martin Jr.? He was chair of the Fed from 1951 until 1970. He really uh, played instrumental role in modernizing the central bank uh, that, ex that we have today. Uh, and so a, a funny story that's in the book, uh, Martin was named Fed chair by President Truman. And this was as a part of the Fed Treasury Accord in 1951. Truman was very upset that interest rates would go up because he had bought Liberty Bonds after World War One, and he had sold them at a loss. He didn't realize that you could, you know, if you if you retained the uh bond, you would get your principal back, but he sold it at a loss. And so he thought when interest rates went up, that this was, you know, terrible for war veterans and widows. And he says when he's interviewing Martin for the job, you wouldn't do what they did to me, you know, 30 years ago, would you? And Martin says something like history won't wait on markets, won't wait on kings or queens or presidents or chairman of the Fed. Uh, but, you know, as I was researching this, uh, episode between Truman and Martin, I was just struck because it's a little similar to Trump and Powell. You know, Trump was someone who wanted negative rates. He thought uh, government bonds could be called like a hotel loan, uh, refinance at a lower rate. And so here you had someone with uh, a little bit like Truman who maybe didn't quite understand the market mechanics of uh, government bond markets, picking a chair who he thought looked the part. Um, and then, you know, Martin wasn't was not an economist. He joked at one point that, you know, there were a lot of economists who worked at the Fed, but he kept them all in the basement. Powell <laughs> at times has also sort of, you know, he's worn the the faith lightly at some times and he's held on to the models a little bit more at other times. So again, I'm not suggesting that Powell is Martin. Martin's term ends with inflation uh, running away and and you know leaving a problem for Arthur Burns, but um, I, I, I just found that whole episode, uh, sort of interesting. Unless Joseph has a question, I'd like to ask, uh, your book, Trillion Dollar Triage, the, the pivotal moment is March and April, 2020, really March of 2020, when yeah. the federal reserve steps in to provide an un, you know, an unprecedented amount of liquidity to financial markets. Do you think that uh, you know, the person writing a book about the Fed in 10, 20 years will talk about March 2020 with the same 
uh, importance the same sort of, oh, this is a paradigm shift as uh, 2008, uh, quantitative easing, uh, um, the Volcker moment. You know, how, how historical was that moment and, and what was new? It's hard to say, Jack. I think it's hard to say in part because, you know, the fun game that academics refer to as the counterfactual. We don't know what, you know, terrible outcomes were avoided. So it would be a little bit like if you reran history and we had bailed out Lehman in September 2008 and you'd gone to people and said, well, you don't understand, you know, what would have happened if this if we hadn't done this. You just you never know. But so, you know, 10, 20 years from now, obviously, we'll we'll understand better what happened in 22, 23. We're just beginning to see how difficult uh, the next few years could be for the Fed. But um there was a financial crisis in March of 2020. In fact, it was exactly two years ago today that the Fed was meeting that weekend to put together, to, to roll out their plans that they had been putting together over the past few days. Powell had complained to his colleagues over the week of March 16th that it felt like they were swimming after a speedboat. They were trying to get ahead of what was happening in the markets. Remember, they had cut rates to zero that Sunday night meeting on March 15th, they had promised to purchase 700 billion in treasuries and MBS, and it clearly wasn't working. You know, markets were dealing with a lot, including everybody beginning to go trade uh, from their home offices and, you know, these these work from home arrangements that we would come to take for granted, but really hadn't been tested at that point. Uh, so that was a really ugly week in the markets. And by the end of the week, Powell said, we just have to throw everything at this. They had already thrown Bernanke's playbook at it. And there were, as I write in the book, you know, there were people inside the Fed who thought this was an overreaction, who thought Powell was um, doing too much, uh, crossing lines that they shouldn't be crossing. And Powell, you know, later says to me that, uh, you know, he felt like they had to do this, that he wouldn't be able to explain to the American people during this you know, once in a century pandemic, why they had these tools that they had chosen not to use. And it ended up being quite successful. The announcement effects alone from those programs on March 23rd, 2020, ended up putting a bottom in the market. And of course, we know the pandemic got a lot worse. We know the economic carnage, uh, at least temporarily got a lot worse. But, um, you know, there were there were some grim scenarios that we didn't have to live through at least in the financial market context. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> now, Joseph, yeah. Yeah, now that you mention it, you're right. I think this is week is the week that the markets bottomed two years ago. This was the week that, that everything turned around. And I, I, was, I read your book, and I think it's just an amazing, amazing just inside scoop of what was happening inside. Like, you can't get this anywhere else. There's so many high-level uh, discussions, high-level interviews that you contained. And when I look through that era, it seems like the Fed's toolkit just did rapidly expand. But like you mentioned, they didn't actually have to deploy a lot of it. It was a lot of it was announcement effect. I think just coming from the, the central bank, oftentimes, I think their sense is like the best monetary policy is just stuff you don't have to use at all. It's kind of like like announcement effect, or like an open jaw operation, like the corporate credit facility, for example, I think the maximum amount the secondary market did was about 15 billion. And the primary right. market facility purchased nothing. And yet right. this $10 trillion market was just completely unfrozen simply because the Fed said they would be there. It was it was really remarkable. 
Yeah, you know, Lori Logan gave an interesting speech last year. She runs the markets desk at the New York Fed. And she talked about how there were two types of programs. And actually, the funding markets and the treasury market, the announcement effects didn't work at all, right? They actually had to buy the paper. They were buying $75 billion a day uh, at the end, those, those final two weeks of March, which is just a crazy amount of money. So yeah, on the one hand, uh, and there are some people now who argue, well, that was really what did it. The corporate credit facilities, the kind of Fed magic that you're talking about, maybe that those weren't even necessary just because the open market operations were so massive. Uh, but they, you know, they actually did have to buy those. They did the, the money market mutual uh, liquidity facility did have to purchase assets. Uh, but the announcement effects on March 23rd for the corporate credit facilities rehabilitated those markets. And again, in a complete work from home environment, you had more money being raised by companies without roadshows, just, you know, the restructuring experts I talked to had never seen anything like it. And maybe right. we never will again. You mentioned that even Carnival was able to raise like billions of dollars. I mean, Carnival, that's probably the worst hit company of everything, right? So if they could, everyone could too. But you also make a really good point about the treasury purchases not having working to begin with. There's a really interesting part in your book where I recall that there was some mention of maybe the next step would have been yield curve, some form of yield curve control. And I think we've kind of heard whispers of that from speeches from Brainerd, for example. But it, I thought it was really interesting to hear that, that that discussion was was possibly just the next step if massive purchases didn't work. But they, they did ultimately work. You just had to dial it up a bit, I guess. Yeah. And that's really where the title of the book came from. When I you know, began to think about writing this book in the summer of 2020, I was reflecting on you know March 11th. March 12th, March 13th, these were the days where they announced a huge expansion of repo, which was what they had done in September 2019 during the repo ruckus, right? And it didn't work this time. The money just wasn't getting through the pipes. And so on Friday, March 13th, they, they used sort of an existing authority that they had to purchase treasury bills to go in and buy across the curb. And they bought $37 billion that Friday, which was the rest of their authority. That got them to the weekend, but it was triage at that point. It was just... These interventions kept getting bigger and bigger until they had stabilized the patient, which in this case was the U.S. government bond market. And literally a trillion dollars, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then some once you get into fiscal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Joseph, you, you say there were uh, uh, talks of yield curve control. Uh, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was where yield curve control to stop yields from falling too low, not from uh, causing them from rising too much. Right. No, this would have been this would have been to to maintain stability in the treasury market. The Fed saying we will purchase treasuries in unlimited amounts to fix yields at you know whatever percent for whichever security. So these were you know not these weren't formal drafted white papers or anything like that. These were just sort of conversations Powell was having with Clarida, the vice chair, and with his colleagues about well. You know, we need to get a hold of this. We need to get a handle on this market. Do we need to go to yield curve control? Mm. Oh, thanks. You're right. Yeah, not causing them from rising too much. Great. So they, they yields fell so much until about, about March 10th, March 11th, and right. then they rose, and that's what really you know injected chaos into the treasury market. And Nick, that's my question. And you know, Joseph and I, I think we've talked about this before that the hidden mandate of the Federal Reserve is to uh, be essentially a market maker for government paper in terms of a treasury. And you know there are yeah. some documents, I believe I've read, where they say uh, maximum employment, 
we all know that. Price stability, we all know that. And then they actually do list this, uh, you know, to, to uh, provide a reasonable market for, for Treasury security. How important is that? And, you know, have you, have you talked to, to Federal Reserve officials about that? What, what, are, what do they make of that? Well, I think that week was just different because we were heading into an environment that no one had ever experienced before. And we didn't know how bad it was going to get, right? So I think there, Powell's instinct was err on the side of doing more. And you could say they got lucky, right? There was a lot of luck involved that, you know, the announcement effects worked from those programs that the concern on Friday, March 20th, for example, which was the day before the last business day before they out announced those uh, corporate lending backstops, the fear was it would be very difficult for even the best rated companies to issue. And once you saw a Google or a Microsoft come to market and pay a huge spread and a very expensive deal, then everybody else would say, well, geez, if that's what you know Google or Microsoft is borrowing at, then I'm screwed. So uh, you know, it's one of those things where they acted before you could really see uh, the damage in the market. But you saw big companies like Macy's and Ford getting downgraded that weekend uh, to junk debt. And um, right, I mean, companies with zero revenue, how, how are you supposed to prepare for something like that? And yeah. Nick, you make, make a great point in your book. So in the corporate debt market, when, you're, when you drop below investment grade, um, you're basically called some, like a fallen angel. And there's a right. vast amount of investors can no longer lend to you. So if you were a good company, you're heading into, let's say, the pandemic and you got downgraded, you, you're basically suddenly losing access to all financing because you just no one is going to lend to like a sub-investment grade company. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of gets into some of the moral hazard questions going forward, because now that this has been established, that the Fed will lend to this asset, it makes the ratings much more important. People have to think about, well, if you're, you know, investment grade, uh, do you have a, access to a Fed put if there were some sort of emergency again where they come in and buy corporate bonds? Uh, they were lucky in the respect that they didn't have to buy that many. In fact, there was sort of a political fight later where, Pat Toomey, the Republican senator from Pennsylvania, is pushing Powell to hearing that summer saying, well, you've rehabilitated the market. Why are you even buying these things? And Powell says, we need to do this because we said we would do it. You need to be credible. Your words, you know, you have to follow through uh, with actions when you say these things. Otherwise, uh, you, you could lose credibility. Um, so, yeah, they got lucky there and they didn't have to do more. The concern at the time was, you know, I remember talking to a restructuring lawyer who said, geez, Powell is going to be hearing from you and your colleagues at every Fed press conference for the next year about what are you doing with these defaulted securities and those defaulted securities? The concern was that the Fed was just going to own so much bad debt. And that never really happened. I think an important part of the story is, you know, you do see that those funding cliffs widen once the Fed went in and said they would backstop triple B's and up. Uh, and so then Powell has to make this even more controversial decision, which he does on April 9th, about backstopping essentially the junk debt market by agreeing to purchase those junk debt ETFs. The rationale for it was they wanted to provide support to the fallen angels, as you mentioned, Joseph. And so that was a way for them to sort of get in there and do that. But, you know, the Fed was purchasing junk debt ETFs in April, uh, May, June 2020. And that's something you can't unsee.
And the market loved it. Those prices just went to the moon after the Fed did that. And like you mentioned, they just, they just pushed a little bit too. It's all signal. And Nick, why was it that they only uh, purchased you know fifteen at eighteen billion dollars of of these ETFs, but they you know had to purchase hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars worth of Treasuries and mortgage backed securities? You know, why didn't they buy more bonds? Well, they had to buy the Treasuries because those markets were just in complete dysfunction. And they didn't have to buy the same amount of corporate securities because the corporate market rehabilitated almost right away. I mean, uh, you mentioned that uh, Carnival uh, Cruise Lines being able to go out and issue, I think, April 1st. And I remember when news of that, my colleague at the journal, Matt Wirtz, wrote about that. And when news of that deal, it ricocheted through you know, the West Wing and Congress. And people saw this and they said, oh my gosh, this is a company that wasn't even eligible for the Fed's backstop because they're not domiciled in the US. And so even companies that didn't have access to the Fed backstop or out there issuing money, uh, get, getting, you know, getting liquidity, um, you know, that I think people saw that as the turning point and said, okay, maybe we won't, maybe the Fed won't have to do as much. What the Fed ended up doing, they didn't really want to have to buy ETFs. That's sort of icky, right? BlackRock issues most of those. BlackRock was running this program for them. It's just not a good look at all. So they created their own bespoke sort of ETF, uh, their bond market index, and they had a whole formula for how they were going to toggle it up if conditions deteriorated and they would slow it down or even take the purchases to zero. Um, and, you know, the market did so well for the rest of 2020, they never really had to buy very much. Again, beyond what I mentioned before, the kind of put your money where your mouth is. You said you were going to buy, so you better get in and do it. Yeah, I think like, Go ahead, like you mentioned, like you mentioned, Jack, that I think the treasury market breaking was something that the Fed had never seen before. Like people assume that liquidity is going to be there. Right. They assume that treasury is money like. And what, what they didn't realize that is that the treasury market seemed to grow much bigger than the, the market liquidity. So like I think in early 2000s, treasury market treasuries outstanding was like six or seven trillion and daily cash transactions were about, was about 400 billion a day. Now, fast forward to, to today, you know, marketable treasuries are above 20 trillion, but the daily cash transactions are just about 600 billion. So the outstanding grew so much that the basically the auditorium was so big that the exits didn't grow at the, at the same at the same rate. And so the, the treasury market breaking is kind of like if you go to a bank and you ask for your money back, the bank says, I don't have any money. Uh, people think of treasuries as kind of just a, you know, money so that's where they put their money they all went to the bank tried to get their money up the treasury market was broken they couldn't get it out so there was that was kind of uh you, know, you can think of it as a giant bank run almost and that was systemically important once you fix that fix that as nick mentioned things kind of unfroze a bit so that helped a lot well people couldn't redeem their less liquid assets right they couldn't right. sell their their boeing or whatever so they were they would you know they would liquidate their treasuries because that was the one thing but you see in the book, you know, emails that are going back and forth between John Williams and Lori Logan about how they're seeing massive redemptions by uh, foreign central banks trying to get dollars. And so they came out with the FEMA repo facility. Eventually, it was not heavily used, but it was there so that foreign governments could basically swap their uh, treasuries at the New York Fed for dollars. And that way they wouldn't have to contribute to this forced selling of treasuries that was just going to make the market pandemonium 
even greater. You had the basis traits unwinding. You had a lot going on all at once. Yeah, uh, basis trade related to a correlation trade, meaning that you buy a lot of bonds, you buy a lot of stocks, and they're supposed to hedge each other. But uh, as we've talked about, bonds and stocks sold off together, which just compounded um, the disaster. Right. Uh, um, Nick, I actually want to uh, just put your, your book up there, uh, Trillion Dollar Triage. Uh, it's, it's behind you. I've read it. I love it. Joseph has read it. He loves it. You know, people who are kind of in the know uh, probably already have it. But if, if people watching this haven't already, uh, you got to get your hands on this book. Uh, Nick, I want to now zoom forward a little bit. I think so, you just one more sorry, thing sorry, about Joseph, the, go ahead. One more book, one more thing about that era that I, I think we should mention. And there's something in that book that has never been disclosed before that you would only find out if you read that book. And that is, believe it or not, the Fed was almost thinking about buying open-ended mutual funds. That's basically like just beyond junk bonds, right? So they were they were they were, they were going to go very far and this was never public before, but I guess it just suggests that if something like this happens again, you know, that's a possibility that they would go into something like an open-ended mutual fund. Yeah. And, you know, people are unhappy about the moral hazard. And I write in the book about how, you know, it's one thing to get mad at the fire department for saving your house and getting the fire wet, getting the furniture wet. But if these issues now, sort of these, you know, regulatory, uh, shadow regulatory issues don't get dealt with, then people, I think, do have a right to be upset, right? If we get, you know, if we get further from this, and now we've seen, you know, twice in 12 years bailing out money market mutual funds, uh, and there's, if there are still no actions taken, then uh, I think the actions the Fed took in 2020 won't age as well. They won't look as good in the future if they end up you know, perpetuating the cycle of uh, uh, running to the rescue, but then not, you know, doing fire prevention once you get past the fire. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the final thing I'll, I'll say is it, this book really gave me a window, not just into 2020, but the past, because I always sort of accepted central bank independence as something that I accepted, you know, since the first uh, central bank, of uh, Bank of Sweden or, or Bank of England or whatever. But, you know, I, I learned that, it really uh, didn't didn't emerge until I think after 1951, um, and then it's something that uh, central bankers always have to fight for, including Jay Powell um, against against uh, President Trump. Uh, Nick, so the subtitle of the book sort of uh, uh, and prevented economic disaster about the, the Fed's actions. Um, that that indicates that you know, you think that makes the argument that and a lot of people uh, believe this, that, that the Federal Reserve's actions played a pivotal role in staving off um, economic disaster. But we were speaking less, uh, yesterday with Joseph, and I think you mentioned there were sort of four miscalculations that the Federal Reserve has made, not in March and April 2020, but since right. then, late 2020 and throughout 2021, that uh, allow the Fed to have found itself in, in the, the current predicament where Inflation is red hot, and uh, Fed funds rate is only, they've only done one rate hike. So can you tell us about those four miscalculations? Yeah, if you want to understand, you know, you're looking for why is the Fed in this position now, and what did they do to put themselves in this position? Again, look, I know hindsight's 2020, uh, easy for me to criticize, but that's my job here. So four, I think the four mistakes you could point to, uh, and I'll run through them quickly, and then I'll spend a little more time on them. One was the way that they operationalized their new framework in the fall of 2020. Second was their reaction or the lack thereof to the Biden administration's $2 trillion in spending uh, one year ago, almost exactly one year ago, 
Then you had the macro forecasting challenges around transitory inflation, the supply side shocks, uh, obviously a lot of difficulty forecasting how the economy comes back from a pandemic, but those have been fairly well documented. And then fourth was a real sensitivity around, you know, handholding markets on uh, to avoid a taper tantrum. So to, to dive into those four a little bit more, I'm not you know, saying that the framework caused the problems here. And Powell, I think at the press conference last week, did get a little bit defensive about the, the idea that the new framework, which was designed to encourage a modest overshoot of the 2% inflation target. Uh, you know, I think it's important to recognize the framework was really about the Fed's fear and their concern about being stuck at zero. They do not like being at zero. Uh, they don't understand uh, quantitative easing, the you know, the, the balance of the two tools that they have to use and 2% inflation target was not really, you know, when they, when they implemented that 10 years ago, they weren't thinking they were going to spend a lot of time at zero. So the framework was a response to this new world of lower for longer. Larry Summers calls it secular stagnation. The issue wasn't so much the framework. The issue was how they operationalized it. And what am I talking about? The September, 2020 FOMC meeting, there's a debate about what forward guidance they're going to issue now that they have agreed to this new framework. And there was one camp that said, let's keep rates accommodative until we get maximum employment. And there was another camp, and that was this the camp that prevailed that said, no, we should, we should commit to keeping rates at zero until we reach maximum employment. So we're going to meet the inflation goal, but we're also going to keep interest rates at zero until we reach maximum employment. And that got them in a position because again, no one was expecting 7% inflation 12 months later uh, in the private sector and the Fed, really nowhere. I mean, the big critique of the framework in September of 2020 was how are you even going to get inflation up to 2.5% when you failed to get it basically to 2% for a decade? It would be like if I said, uh, I haven't been able to lose the 10 pounds that I told you I was going to lose. So my strategy for losing 10 pounds is now to lose 20, right? That was the big but they, they locked themselves into this very dovish new reaction function that was an extension of their framework. And then, as I said, you have a desire now to prove that this new that you will be credible. Credibility is important. When, we're, when the Fed is at the zero lower bound again, they're going to want people to think that there's actually something they can do. And so they need to prove that this lower for longer, that they'll tie their hands to the mast or whatever analogy you want to use. So when the fiscal stimulus comes in, they don't react to it, uh, not until you get those high CPI prints a couple of months later. Uh, and even then, they're not you know, really diving into the, to the taper conversation. I write in the book about how at the January 2021 FOMC meeting, or right before it, Powell sort of lays down the law. There are a couple of Reserve Bank presidents saying uh, maybe we should start start to talk about tapering. And the Fed had just issued guidance saying, you know, that they were going to need to have substantial further progress on their employment and inflation goals before they tapered. So he's saying, no, talking about tapering is tapering. Shut up. We're not going to do that right now. Uh, so that compounds the mistake. Then you have the macro forecasting errors describing inflation as transitory. There were people inside the Fed saying maybe we shouldn't do that. The semiconductor chip CEOs are saying that this is a long-run demand problem, not just a supply problem. Uh, and then they were Powell was very sensitive about not causing a taper tantrum, in part because, as I write in the book, he had uh, blamed himself a little bit 
for the taper tantrum in 2013. He had been one of three Fed governors in May of 2013 that went to Bernanke and said, we need to end QE3. And Bernanke proceeds to go out and talk about tapering and you have the taper tantrum. And the, uh, how should I put this? The name of this, the title of this talk is uh, the Fed's forward guidance is no more. And that might be a little dramatic. They're still doing forward guidance, but I love the word that you use holding. before in the operationally uh, of, of the framework, it was what two quarters, three quarters. You need to give the market all of this uh, 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 warning, all this caution, say, uh, okay, in a March meeting, you say we're going to do it in May. Then we're going to do it. In, you give all this delay. But now in January, uh, Powell mentioned something about being humble and nimble. Can you talk about that transition and, and what it means for the future path of policy and how quickly it can be implemented? Well, I think forward guidance, I mean, the way I see it uh, is it's a tool in service of providing more accommodation when you're at the lower bound, right? When you're When you have the problem the Fed has now, you, you don't need to guide markets as much. Uh, and it it originates, this whole idea comes from Ben Bernanke's research. So Ben Bernanke uh, is, is a governor at the Fed in the early 2000s before he becomes chair. And he says at a meeting, this is in 2003, where the funds rate is close to 1% and they are worried about this trap of being at zero. And so he says ambiguity has its uses, but mostly in non-cooperative games like poker. Monetary policy is a cooperative game. The whole point is to get financial markets to do some of our work for us. And so you do see over the next two decades, the Fed providing more and more information, whether it's the dots, whether it's the press conferences, so that people in the market understand the Fed's reaction function. And that way, as the data comes in, you know, on payrolls day or CPI day, you see the market trade based on how they think the Fed is going to react. And that's something that didn't exist, uh, you know, before this era of forward guidance to nearly the same extent. Uh, and and so I don't think forward guidance is going away. You still have the dots. You still have speeches like the one Powell gave yesterday where he's trying to guide markets about what the next move or two may be. But you don't have the same kind of gradual pace or measured pace sort of language that you had in the FOMC statement during the past two hiking cycles because the Fed just doesn't have a clear idea of what's going to happen with inflation, of what's going to happen with output. And I think, as we saw last year, if you guide markets in a direction that ends up being wrong, you make the wrong macro call, then that's actually really harmful. And so just, you know, you try to get away from that. Powell actually was trying to get away from providing forward guidance at the end of 2018, too, because it looked like maybe policy rates were closing, closing in on neutral no one quite knew, you know, beyond neutral, how far they were going to have to go. So they had really started to uh, fade out some of the forward guidance, but, you know, they never quite got there. And part of uh, the value of forward guidance, as I understand it, is that the Federal Reserve can have the market tighten monetary policy for the Fed. So the Fed doesn't have to actually swing that lever because by the time they have to swing that lever, the, the Fed funds rate has already been been priced there. And if you look at the, the violent swings uh, in the interest rate futures market, let's say from the start of this year to now, uh, where now the terminal rate is something like 2.8% in, in September 2023, you, do you think that most of the job uh, of the Federal Reserve's indicating hawkish policy, most of that has been done? Or do you think that there's there's more uh, forward guidance and hikes 
to come down down the uh, down the pike. Well, I don't know anybody who has a great idea of what the terminal rate is going to be. I mean, if if we're actually living through a regime shift, you know, pandemics disrupt equilibria. We've just seen that wars create scarcity, and we're going through a war right now. So, you know, Powell yesterday, I thought for the first time, sort of talked about the idea that maybe the disinflationary forces, especially around globalization, that had brought inflation down and kept it down over the last 20 years, that maybe they would partly reverse. We don't know what's going to happen there. But, you know, read what Larry Summers is writing. I mean, he thinks we're heading towards a higher uh, terminal rate, and the Fed needs to talk about that. Um, So I, you know, I wouldn't even hazard a guess there. I get the sense that when Powell first started, I remember him, you know, Powell is not a PhD economist. He's a lawyer by training with a lot of good professional experience. He mentioned the models as basically for reference only. And I heard that and I felt great relief because this is what a smart guy would say. But um, he seems to have wafered back and forth there. And I think from his speech yesterday, he, he was mentioning that, you know, the models basically indicated that we wouldn't have inflation, but we did. So maybe he's going back to being humble and nimble, as Jack mentioned, maybe being more uh, not so model reliant. So that makes it also, I think, a lot more difficult to have for guidance. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, then let's see. Let's talk about quantitative tightening. Uh, what's going on here? You know, Nick, I, I know you've been putting out these great charts, as well as you, Joseph, of the maturity profile of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet uh, and how it's slightly different from the last time that uh, the Federal Reserve attempted to do quantitative tightening. Uh, can you tell us about that and why it's significant? Well, Joseph's the expert on QT here, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy to, to, you know, I I think what we heard last week from Powell at the press conference was they're pretty much going to do it at least for the first year or so. They're going to do it the way they did last time. Reinvestment caps, passive runoff only at first. Uh, you know, the, the mortgage cap seems reasonable that it'll be high enough so that uh, you're uh, not doing any reinvestments um, because prepays are so low. Uh, so it seems like you're, you know, we're waiting pretty much to find out from the March minutes in early April what those caps are. Are they 80 billion? Are they 100 billion? But he's pretty much pre announced we're going to get a lot of uh, runoff this year, likely at the May meeting. I don't really know what more uh, mystery there is there. You know, there's some people who are talking about. Uh, selling the long end, selling the MBS in order to deliberately steepen the curve. I thought Joseph had a very interesting blog post recently about all the treasury supply that's coming on and how that could actually steepen the curve. I mean, the way some people have talked about this is uh, the Fed has a basket of securities every day that are one day old, right? And they allow a certain number of those when they're running down the balance sheet, they allow a certain number of those to mature every day. It's really up to the treasury to decide what to issue that's going to change the duration profile of uh, you know, the, the, the treasury market much more than the Fed. The idea that the Fed can steepen the curve through passive runoff, uh, to me, it seems like you really want to watch what happens with treasury funding. Yeah, Nick makes a really good point. So so for you guys who don't know what happens when the, the when you do QT, the, the Treasury issues new debt and takes the proceeds to pay back the Fed. That's how the Fed shapes a shrinkster balance sheet. And so 
the maturity of the debt that the treasury issues is going to have a big effect on the shape of the curve. And, and that's all in, at the discretion of the treasury. Uh, usually what they'll try to do is they'll try to see where in the curve it's most cost effective to, to issue. But, you know, they, they could have other policy considerations as well. And so, something else that I noticed really interestingly, and Powell's been hinting at this, is that he thinks that he can do QT in like three years. And so it, it, that's a pretty aggressive timeline because if you look at where the balance sheet is, it's at $9 trillion. And if you guess, let's say Paul wants to go to where we were pre-pandemic plus, you know, let's say uh, a trillion or two, uh, th that works out to be like, you know, like maybe a trillion a year in QT. And that's uh, that's more than well, twice. I mean, they did they did $800 billion last time, right? That was over the two years they did it. So yeah, yeah a trillion is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Over yeah. Two, two years. Yeah. They ramped it up very slowly. Yeah. Uh, you know. Rich Clarida, who wasn't on the board yet, he compared it. He said their strategy is like uh, losing weight by eating two desserts a day instead of three desserts a day. Right? <laughs> it was a very slow ramp up. They were very, very worried. They, they were they were very impressioned by the taper tantrum, and they didn't want to do that again. And I think what you've heard from Powell so far this year is we're not going to we don't have the same concerns that we did in 2017. So we're not going to you know do a really a 12 or 15 month ramp up, which was what they did last time. Yeah, the, the, the maximum rate last time, I think, was 50 billion a month. Right. I, that's probably going to be the minimum rate. I, I mean, I don't know, but it's going to right. be a lot faster than that. Yeah, I actually think we got a chart. Uh, this one is from you, Nick, but we got a lot from you, Joseph, if we could just add this up here. Uh, oh, that's a great chart. Yeah. So uh, Nick, do you, Nick or Joseph, do you want to try and explain what we're seeing here? And this is from January 11th, but all the other charts yeah. are pretty recent. So basically, every quarter, you know, no matter where you set the cap. So the red line there, I can't even see my print on that very fancy Excel chart. But the the red line is, you know, a hypothetical reinvestment cap. So there's only one month every quarter where the cap binds. So when the Fed was allowing $50 billion to roll off uh, the terminal, you know, runoff in their 2018 version of this, there was really only one month in which there were $50 billion in securities going back. To the market uh it's below that in other months and they could set the cap even higher than the line i have there and you can see you know it pretty much um you know at a certain point it, it, it only it only binds infrequently it's a little bit higher in the first two months there because there's a lot of bills and so i guess one other question would be do they have a carve out for bills do they just let the bills go back not subject to the cap uh those are important you know technical considerations uh, Joseph, I want to I want to get your thoughts in here. Let's let's just mosey on through. This is uh, a chart. What are we seeing here? Is this a similar thing? This is, I guess, it's the history, right? Yeah, this is the history. This is what they did last time. You can see the slow ramp up. Max down at thirty billion. You know, I, I remember remember back in QE one when people were like, "Yeah, we're going to buy a few billion. Everyone was like, "Oh my God, that's a huge number!" And then we fast forward to March twenty twenty. We're buying like a trillion dollars in a month. I'm thinking this new QT is going to make the old QT look quaint. So this $30 billion cap that we see here from the last QT, that was the maximum. Uh, the, this coming QT, it's going to be much higher. And, and as Nick's chart mentioned, you know, we have the potential to, to be a lot more aggressive. Yeah. And uh, Joseph, Nick alluded to it. Your most recent article on, on your blog, fedguide.com, it's called The Great Steepening. What is The Great Steepening? And I think I got every chart in that blog post. So if you want to reference any, please feel free. Yeah, so I, I think 
I think something to keep in mind that when people think about rates, it's it's not so much what about perceptions of you know inflation and growth, but there's a real supply and demand dynamic too. I mean, let's say the market is priced perfectly, but you suddenly you have an extra trillion dollars in supply, then you got to find someone to buy that. I, I think that what's happening right now is it's not just that you you might have aggressive QT where you potentially can have hundreds of billions of treasuries that have to be absorbed by the private sector. You also have very aggressive net issuance. Now that net issuance, now the treasury has discretion as to where to issue that, as, as Nick mentioned, but ultimately it has to be absorbed by the market. So that has the potential to put a, a lot of upward pressure on, on the uh, on rates. Do you have that uh, one, uh, no, the one above? Yes. Oh, something else to keep in mind. So um, like Nick mentioned, so QT is going to be about treasuries, but also agency MBS. But agency MBS is, is going to be pretty steady. So the way that this works is that an agency MBS can be paid down either through normal principal payments or through refinancing. So let's say you have a mortgage at 5%, rates go to 3%, you refinance. What that means is you're taking out a new loan to repay back the old loan. That's probably not going to happen since um, rates were coming off generational lows basically for mortgages. So you're probably going to have a very steady agency MBS. So that's going to probably not be a binding cap. The rest is is mostly going to be, the, the fluctuations are probably mostly going to be in treasuries. And with bills, maybe treated differently. And sometimes they do. Hmm. We've only got a few minutes left. Um, we've got a question from John McGowan who says, will the cute oh, quantitative, yeah, wait, go ahead. Guys, John McGowan, uh, that's what a former manager on the open market desk. He's like a 20 year veteran of the money market desk. So that's awesome that he's calling in. Hey, John. That's amazing. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, will, he wants to know, will the quantitative tightening caps increase over time? Will the initial quantitative uh, tightening cap be low? Uh, Nick, what are you hearing from from the folks you talk to? I mean, I, I would go back to what Powell said at the press conference last week. He seemed to indicate that there wouldn't be huge surprises in terms of how they did it. Most of the you know, uh, Wall Street research desks that watch the Fed seem to think there will be a ramp up, but it'll be much, much shorter. So a three month ramp up to the terminal runoff rate, um, you know, it, it, I don't think anybody should expect it to be phased in over five quarters the way that it was last time. But short of that, I I wouldn't begin to guess on exactly how many months they'll take to, to run it up. Hmm. Uh, I've got a question which is about uh the yield curve it's been flattening i think the two the yield between the 10 and the two uh was as flat as 20 basis points recently and a lot of folks are saying this is a warning sign because a, an inverted yield curve when it goes negative is a, is a sign that a recession is on the way a journalist or actually the the uh pers folk, person who interviewed jay powell at uh, yesterday where he gave a speech asked him that very question about the 210 spread and Powell seemed to slightly dismiss the 210 spread. He said, it's one of our indicators, but he said he, they like to focus more on the nearer term yield curve. Uh, Nick or Joseph, do you, can you explain exactly what uh, Powell meant by that? Yeah. So, you know, actually go back to July, 2018, which was the last time we were in this situation, twos, tens narrowing people beginning to talk about uh, what does this mean for the economy next year? And, Around the same time, there was a Fed paper published by two board economists, Eric Engstrom and Steve Sharp, 
uh, called the near-term forward yield spread is a leading indicator, a less distorted mirror. And they basically put forward that you should look at the front end of the curve. This is exactly what Powell was talking about and referring to yesterday, specifically the spread between three-month bill rates versus three-month bills, six quarters or 18 months forward. And that is a much better predictor of rate cuts, which of course tend to uh, precede recessions. So if you looked at that, I didn't look at it today, but if you looked at it yesterday, it was the, the near-term spread, that three-month bill, three-month, uh, 18 months forward, is historically very wide. It's at the widest it's been since 2002. It was like 230 basis points. And so obviously that could change very quickly. There were Fed officials who were pointing to this paper in July 2018 when the Fed was saying, you know, we're going to take rates above 3%, saying, see, the two tens are saying recession, but look at the near-term spread. It's still steepening. By January of 2019, the near-term spread had inverted. And of course, we now know the Fed cut rates six months later. But, um, you know, it's it's been a very reliable predictor of Fed rate cuts, and it is not inverting right now. So go check out that FRB research paper, uh, and you will now know what, you know, and that's in glory Powell was talking about yesterday. Yeah, in preparation, I actually made a 10-2 in red and then a 10 year minus three month i thought that's what powell was but you're saying it should be the what was it an 18 month forward it's months? a it's a three month bill versus the three month bill 18 months forward and it looks a lot like the the blue line you have there with uh three month and 10 year uh spread but it's 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 even steeper and you know it, it inverts in 1998 which is the only time it inverted without there being a recession in the last 30 or 40 years. And that was also when the Fed cut after um, LTCM and, uh, you know, avoided the the downturn that could have happened there, I guess. Yeah, it makes a it's lot a of sense. Dollar curve, that, that, basically. Yeah. yeah, forward rate. It makes a lot of sense that that would be extremely uh, upward sloping, not an inversion because the three month bill uh, 18 months from now is obviously going to be so much higher because of the projected rate hikes. Um, Joseph, uh, uh, Nick, uh, it's been fantastic having you on forward guidance. Joseph, I'm going to give you uh, the last word, or I should say the last question to ask uh, Nick. Gosh, so many. Is there any, is there anything interesting? So, I mean, you, you know, Powell a lot, you guys hang out a lot, talk a lot. So, <laughs> How would you, how, how, I mean, he always seems like a cool person to me. I mean, how would you describe him? Um, the people I've talked to that know him well have said he has a very high EQ. He is very good at listening to people. He has this weird, um, I don't know if you would call it skill, where he can re re repeat backwards what you've just said or something like that. He's, <laughs> he's a very good listener. I, I think... The, the place where you actually see this is on Capitol Hill. So think about where we are right now. 8% inflation, maybe the maybe a recession coming because of a policy, uh, very aggressive policy. And yet last week, the Senate Banking Committee votes 23 to 1 in favor of his appointment for a second term. You know, this would have been a time where I might have thought maybe you'd see some lawmakers express their unhappiness with the Fed. They had no difficulty doing that 10 years ago when there was a lot of unhappiness with QE3. Um, and yet, 
a lot of support on Capitol Hill for Powell. And I think that speaks to his charm offensive on Capitol Hill, his strong relationships with lawmakers. You know, they, they like him. They like that he, you know, talks to them, not sounding like some, you know, pointy headed PhD. He's a normal, he's as normal a person as you could expect from somebody who's had a very successful career in the private sector and who has a very uh, prestigious and difficult job. Cool. That's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's been fantastic having you here. I think, you know, this combination, uh, you, Nick and you, Joseph, I, really think that you guys both have so much experience and know so much about the Fed, but you come at it from different angles. So I'm really glad that we got you here together. Thank you everyone for watching. Please be, uh, you know, definitely check out uh, Nick's latest book. Again, that's Trillion Dollar Triage. You know, Nick, if you want to hold that up for the camera. Um, by the way, you know, I have to say, uh, in two years, tomorrow will be the two-year anniversary of the S&P 500 bottom. So, you know, it might be a, a good present to buy yourself. Um, so, uh, Nick, uh, people can find, uh, you know, uh, Nick's Twitter at Nick Timoros and Joseph's uh, Twitter at uh, FedGuy12. Thank you guys uh, for coming on and thank you everyone for watching. Thanks, Jack. Bye.